This essay is from Cinema Year Zero. You can find us at cinemayearzero.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Year Zero Cinema. Sus. Documentary Ethics in the Streaming Age. Introduction. What links together Joe Exotic and Michael Jordan? 2020's two larger-than-life documentary stars are charismatic products of celebrity culture, whose stranger-than-fiction stories focus on one person's Herculean rise-fall-rise chronicle. Their nostalgic tales are fed to viewers through Netflix, the streaming service that has arguably given documentary a new cultural cachet, even if the form seemed already ubiquitous. The makers of Tiger King and The Last Dance, both 2020, ask viewers to switch off for hour upon hour of episodic documentary, retelling stories almost directly from Wikipedia. They trade cultural epiphany for anodyne repetition. What then, Cinema Year Zero has asked itself, is the documentary form for? The art versus entertainment cultural debate persists, and documentary has a unique ability to navigate journalism, storytelling, and the cold hard facts as light entertainment. Nothing is more frustrating than the latest doc issue doc being heralded for its mere ability to perform a public service, and yet all these designations are conflated, blurring easy definitions of what documentary is, exacerbated by its prevalence in everyday life. Between footage of the chemical explosion at Beirut's port, manipulated and deepfake imagery of political figures from Donald Trump to Jess Phillips, and the pandemic's encouragement of Zoom-based visual entertainment, documentary is all around, and ever more difficult to understand. Is this inherently sus? That colloquialism may have taken on a negative dimension, but to us it doesn't mean bad, so much as worthy of interrogation. So let's take a closer look at the ethics of documentary in this sus age of streaming. A sus age party, if you will. When deciding the brief of this volume, we knew our writers would interpret it differently. Some have seized on documentary ethics, others have focused on the streaming age. What we did not necessarily plan for, yet has nevertheless become an inescapable reality, is that the essays in this volume often converge on questions of viewpoint. Who owns the camera? Who owns the gaze? Who is its subject? These relationships, as John Berger said, are never settled. Fittingly for these questions, we start at the beginning of documentary cinema with Joseph Owen's examination of Robert Flaherty's dubious and pioneering 1922 film Nanook of the North. Through the lens of Virginia Woolf's writings on biography, Owen interrogates the divide between fact and fiction in Flaherty's film. How does the fact-fiction chasm intersect with the political act of perceiving? What does it mean for Flaherty to embellish facts about an Inuk man for the mass consumption of American and European audiences? Flaherty's documentary may have wrestled with these ethical conundrums, even if the time period seems to predate that sort of introspection in the medium by many years. By comparison, Orson Welles' Of the Side of the Wind, also an object of mass consumption after its release on Netflix, is a splurge of self-effacing depravity. As Ben Flanagan argues in his essay, The Other Side of the Wind is a hybrid documentary about its own making. Isn't that ultimately what all films are? Have the controversies that dogged Nanook of the North been so wrapped up in its legacy that they have become an essential part of the film itself? Nanook was a triumph for the white male genius. The Other Side of the Wind was about the downfall of that genius. Perhaps The Other Side of the Wind has more in common with its Netflix cousins, the true crime documentary, if Nanook of the North depicted a complex history pared down and often distorted for mass consumption, what horrors now populate the true crime industrial complex? The loudest cultural voices are those who want morals confirmed to them by entertainment, yet Tiger King, which is predicated on a willing amorality, seems like the biggest thing on the planet for two weeks of lockdown. The memes were shared, and Carol Baskin is now in the cultural lexicon. The footage of George Floyd's death, shared around the world, 
was likely seen by more people than Netflix could have hoped to capture. Perhaps this is where documentaries are headed, a structureless form built around the 15-second videos many of us capture on our phones every day. All of Smith's reading of Dreams of a Life from 2011 reconstructs a projection of the news events that occur in our minds to show how Carol Morley's documentary helps viewers to get closer to otherwise forgotten news stories. As Satya Harahan explores, there are antecedents for this type of filmmaking. John Aconfra and the Back Audio Film Collective's Handsworth Songs from 1986 captures Birmingham in the days after the 1985 riots, manipulating original, archival and newsreel footage to create a collage that privileges no kind of image above the other. As a precursor to the way users experience moving images on social media, this expanded means of documentary filmmaking suggests a healthier, more democratised landscape for the format. Then again, maybe not. Kathy Brennan's examination of YouTube huckster and all-round awful guy Shane Dawson argues that just because anyone can make documentaries doesn't mean everyone should. Paging Anton Ego. It's an angry essay, but this is Dawson we're talking about, a man whose insane egomania and insatiable lust for video views has led to astonishingly long five-part documentaries of 90-minute episodes. OJ Made in America, this is decidedly not. Leave the low-budget, long-form internet storytelling to masters like John Boys. Perhaps one day Dawson will be the subject of a documentary like The Viewing Booth from 2020. As Kat Mahmood explains in her essay on that film, along with Me and the Cult Leader, also from 2020, these documentaries represent the flip side of something like Nanak of the North. Now the seer is being interrogated, and the muddling of truth that pervades Nanak is precisely the subject of these new films. Then I myself project into the future to see how Isaiah Medina fails to adapt a verso classic. Inventing the future is an effort at praxis that appeals to the letterboxed trots, but misses the pivot of the current moment, even as neoliberalism is on the verge of collapse. Finally, Maximilian Luke Proctor reaches the very end of documentary. Walking, walking through Nathaniel Dorsky's The Arboretum Cycle from 2018, among others, his cinema digest pushes formal limits further with a rumination on the emotive possibilities of experimental documentary. Viewpoint is a key theme, maybe the key theme, of how we receive documentaries in 2020. Social media means everyone has a viewpoint, and we have attempted to survey a broad range of thoughts and feelings on documentary. Eight writers will never be enough to capture the ever-expanding history and potential of the documentary form. Regardless, we hope that whether you read this issue or are listening via the podcast, you will reconsider the veracity of images beyond what an algorithm tells you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider donating to our Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash cinema year zero that's ko hyphen fi dot com slash cinema year zero